However, by phoning the Cub offices on various pretexts, I was able to learn that the person hired was to begin work the following Wednesday. I also learned that the executives held business meetings on Monday mornings. I showed up on Monday, dressed in a rented three-piece suit, looking as eager, expectant, thrilled, and breathless as I anticipated the new employee would feel. Hi, I'm supposed to start work this morning, I said, smiling brightly. For the occasion, I had had my hair cut and dyed a neutral brown. My hair is usually shoulder-length, white as vanilla ice cream, which makes it difficult for me to appear inconspicuous. I am not an albino, for though my skin lacks pigmentation, my eyes have color, a pale, translucent blue. My job, or rather the job of the new public relations person, was to write copy for the Chicago Cub yearbook. A young woman whom I remembered having a confrontation with a few years before kept checking the dates on her calendar and staring at me, trying, I'm sure, to place me. She assigned me back issues of the yearbook to read, promising to give me more substantial employment after lunch when the public relations director returned. As I glanced at the yearbooks, I eyed the rows of footlocker green filing cabinets, my mouth watering for the opportunity to leap into history. Shortly before lunch, I made my way to the supply room and secreted myself behind several thousand Chicago Cub yearbooks. I lay on the floor and covered myself with the glossy little magazines, their slick surfaces smelling like new car interiors. I slept for a while, dreaming I was in the hold of a fishing vessel covered with slippery tropical fish. When the fluorescent hands on my wristwatch showed 6 p.m., I ventured out. The officers were deserted, silent, smelling of paper and coffee grounds. I spent the entire night skimming through the filing cabinets, reading everything I could find concerning the years 1902 to 1908, which were the years the Iowa Baseball Confederacy was in existence. It was sad to find out that to the Cubs, Baseball was not the least magical, it was strictly business. The files contained little but contracts, tax forms, medical expense forms. There were no elaborate personnel files, no newspaper clippings, no fan testimonials. Here was the Cubs' greatest pitcher, Mordecai Peter Centennial Three-Finger or Minor Brown, in a manila folder labeled M. Brown and smudged with fingerprints. Not even a first name. No mention of his 239 victories or of his induction into the Hall of Fame. No mention of his injury, the cropped finger that allowed him to put a special spin on the ball. Just a file with the barest of records. I did find some of my own correspondence in a file labeled Crank Letters, filed away alongside a letter claiming the Chicago Cubs would win the last pennant before Armageddon, and another containing what purported to be conclusive evidence that Ernie Banks and Billy Williams were extraterrestrials. Seeing them side by side, I had to admit that those letters made as much sense as mine. There were penciled notes on one of my more inflammatory letters. Dangerous? FBI? Relative of E.G. Clark? My sister, Enola Gay, is a fugitive from justice. I emerged at 6 a.m., disheveled, dry-mouthed, red-eyed, and without one shred of evidence that the 1908 Chicago Cubs ever visited Big Inning, Iowa, or for that matter, that there ever was a Big Inning, Iowa. It is a fact that there are cracks in time, my father repeated endlessly. Weaknesses, fissures, if you like, in the gauzy dreamland that separates the past from the present. Hearing those words like a musical refrain all through my childhood, I came to believe them, or rather accept them. It was never a matter as simple as belief. To me, they weren't remarkable. After all, some children were taught to accept the enormities, the absurdities, the implausibilities of Scripture as fact. Time is out of kilter here in Johnson County. That's my conclusion, my father said to me often but if something is out of kilter, there's no reason it can't be fixed, and when it's fixed, I'll be proven right. 
Briefly stated, here is what my father believed. Through those cracks in time, little snippets of the past, like small historical mice, gnaw holes in the lath and plaster and wallpaper of what used to be, then scamper madly across the present, causing eyes to shift and ears to perk to their tiny footfalls. To most people, they are only a gray blur and a miniature tattoo of sound, quickly gone and forgotten. There are, however, some of us who see and hear more than they were ever meant to. My father was one of those, as am I. My father, Matthew Clark, dreamed his wife. He lay in his bedroom in the square frame house with green shutters in the Iowa town called Anamata, which long ago before the flood, when everything but the church was washed away in the direction of Missouri, was called Big Inning. Wide awake, eyes pressed shut, Matthew Clark dreamed his ideal woman, conjured her up from the scarlet blackness beneath his lids until she rose before him like a genie, wavery, pulsating. There's always been a...